Hey everyone, welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. This is your host, Chris Walker. We're about to get into another inside look consulting session that I did with the SaaS brand. Getting a ton, a ton of great feedback on this pillar. We get really specific, really deep inside of tactics, back and forth with people. There's just like, there's so much to learn inside of this content pillar about the direction that we go and the questions that get asked and some of the nuances that are very deep for people. And so we got into a lot of good stuff here. We covered everything from Google search strategy, some of the core things that I'm seeing that's impacting this brand as well, all the way to what I consider the white space. And I think the white space is where a lot of marketers should be focused on, places where the channels are not that mature, whether where there's a lot of organic reach, where there's not a lot of com- your competitors or alternatives executing properly there. And so LinkedIn's still an opportunity. I don't think a lot of companies are executing properly there. And we talked about a lot of other ones that might be a little less mature, a little more forward thinking. If you want to push the boundaries, there's a lot of good insight in here. And so if you like this episode, feel free to shoot me a message on on LinkedIn. Let me hear about what you thought about that. We're going to continue to, to lean into this content pillar. I hope you enjoy it. And now to this episode. Definitely put some stuff together for you. And a lot of this is based on some of the more recent like marketing team meetings that we've had, some syncs with our agency on the AdWord side of things, like the paid social side, and then also on like the SEO. And then like more broadly, just like marketing strategy. We actually held our first persona workshop recently and Mm -hmm. trying to get a sense of how it is that we're using the narrative of the folks that we think that we're going after Mm -hmm. to actually craft some of our, uh, so the terminology we've started to use is this above the line and below the line type of uh, like lead, right? And just Mm -hmm. to be sure, like semantically we're on the same page, like to us that's like proximity to like purchase authority. I think like classic C-suite, think like finance sign off, right? I think CEO, that's Mm -hmm. what we're going after with respect to like the above the line. And Mm -hmm. then that below the line type of persona being, uh, we've actually come to call her content Kathy for for Coley. And this person is more of like in the weeds, they'd be in the software doing the day-to-day. They're a little Mm -hmm. bit farther removed from like bottom line business metrics because they're more focused on like the classic content marketing, Mm -hmm. digital marketing type of KPIs. And uh, yeah, we're just trying to get them bought in in terms of like influence and becoming the champion internally with our above the line type totally. of folks. Yeah. At your price point, the the manager level employee is going to be the one who sells your stuff internally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're thinking that as well. The title for this content, Kathy, is typically going to be like, you know, a content marketing manager. Her background is typically, and it's interesting. So when we polled our customer success team, and we talked to sales, we found out the vast majority of this persona does in fact skew female. So mm-hmm. trying to use that to kind of think about how we craft some of our messaging. But yeah, the, the other thing is like the, their background, they come from like a solid, like organic and sometimes paid social background. Organic social starting... is the, your people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things I wanted to get your take on is solving for positioning in our ads and even some of like our email, mm-hmm. tailoring what it is that our current personas, present pain points are mm-hmm. versus speaking to like empathizing with how they've gotten to their current state. 
empathizing mm-hmm. with what it used to be like to be that social media coordinator that's now a digital marketing manager and has this learning curve of other channels and mm-hmm. trying to get their feet wet. And what's your take on kind of present pain point versus building empathy and like thought leadership based on yeah, past experience? It's, it's weird. I actually think that you do both, but in different ways. And so on the aspirational side, I think long form content is where you lean into those touch points, like, you know, dropping in a podcast, I drop in all the time about like huge opportunities for marketers or like the path to becoming the best AE in your company is by getting really good at marketing yourself on LinkedIn. Like mm-hmm. there's, I've dropped those things at the aspirational side more on the podcast than I would in like an ad, so to speak, or different things like that. And so, and then on the ad side, like there's pain points or like, present day, what's broken or what's going on versus the new way. And you can present those both as pain points or opportunity, like, or potential gains. An interesting sort of like tip that I've learned, and this also will help people that are listening to it afterwards, is that um, when you write the copy, whether it's in the creative or in the just body text or whatever, using rhetorical questions about a pain point does not work. And so like thinking about how to frame it up a little bit differently can help, but there's definitely ones where One that sticks to my mind is like at a certain level, if you have remote employees in different states, like stuff starts to break without software or a professional employment organization. And so this, they would just run ads to us to be like, you know, how hard is it to onboard these people? How hard is it to keep up with the taxes and educating you on like, and now we just like do it. So I think there's definitely a play there on pain points, especially in paid. Right. And in your mind, is there a balance to strike between trying to hammer in the pain point versus positively spinning the solution, be it us or even like a vendor agnostic approach within our emails and our ads? Pure testing and feel out the mix. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. I don't think there's any like sort of general guidelines on that. When I think about like a paid mix, it's going to be like, I'm just throwing out numbers here, but it's directionally correct from a starting point. Like, 50% product, 25% social proof, 10% paid PR, 15% like strategic narrative, thought leadership, more like brand above the line, what I would call content. Like that's a general mix. And then inside of like product or thought leadership, you could have pain points, you could have gains and you can figure out, tweak those things. Right. With you. What about with respect to the quantity of personas? Like I come from like, I guess more of the traditional thinking of like, they should probably be like, industry or vertical agnostic, right? You want to have like a pretty broad net cast. But Mm -hmm. when those pain points start to differ based on like those verticals, uh, what's your take on that? And is there like a hard cap in terms of number of personas that you'd recommend like having period? What's the ACD again? It's been a while since we talked like generally. Yep. Uh, We were at 18K. Yeah. So at that, at a lower price point, I think this is like, it feels like it could be a complex deal, but most often this is going to be a single buyer, right? That's going to be championing and getting it done. There's not like getting IT involved and all these people that need to be approvers. I don't think that's the case here. And so I think it's about figuring out the number one person and just getting very deep at that person. And it doesn't, it's weird because like, I don't use personas. I just understand people deeply and the way that I communicate can work for a manager or CMO. And so I think because I'm going more, so through psychographics, then like demographics of job title or different things. And so thinking about what are those people thinking and then 
and then you just have your one persona based on how they feel and what they're doing and different things like that. And also, so you need to understand who your ideal customer is too, though, right? One hundred percent. Getting very, very narrow. Like I heard you take some time with the CSM team and survey and the sales team. Now you need to take that data and start to slice it off and then go and actually talk to people. Both and importantly, people that don't use your product that could be your customer. Mm-hmm. Right. Makes and so just and and just understand what are they doing right now? How is it working? Are they using an alternative? Are they doing it manually? Are they not doing it at all? Do they believe in what you're trying to do? you'll get to feel like their language of like, are they actually feeling the pain points that you're talking about in your ads or not? I think that's fascinating to know how many companies don't actually validate that those pain points actually resonate with buyers. Yeah, it's a great call, especially on the folks that aren't using us. Like my first inclination, like the next step for I was going to be to survey like more granularly existing customers, which is Mm -hmm. like somewhat insightful. But yeah, talking to the folks that- Not a service yet, right? Like one-on-one conversations, I think, especially when you're trying to get like, messaging or different things like that because in a survey you only get surface level and you can't ask why or how or different things like that and so like eight to twelve conversations with your evangelist users your like the people that are low on the usage statistics of your tool and then people that don't use and get that assessment and then once you learn see if you can segment the market deeper and it may not be on industry or different things like that it might be about what type of product they sell or who their customer is or weird things like that. Interesting. When you say the people that are on like the lower end of product usage, to me, that kind of translates to churn risk. Is that what you're talking about there? It, it's just on, yeah, it's just to understand like, what do those people think relative right. different than the people that are evangelists? Like an understanding that can help you through a CSM, but also through marketing to understand like, are the people on the low end actually our ICP? If not, why? Got it. Yeah, I'm with you. And then it also sounded like really hammering down to like that one internal champion would be calories better spent than trying to solve for like a host of different personas that mm-hmm. might, based on like company size, even be involved in, in the conversation. Totally. And I think for more, just to, for people that are listening afterwards, for more complex sales, like one time we were selling to hospitals and like we needed the nurses, the respiratory therapists and the physicians on board. And so you needed three different personas because they could all veto it in some way or another, right? Respiratory actually signed off on it. Physicians needed to actually prescribe it and nurses needed to actually maintain it. And so with all those different things, like we needed those stakeholders. I don't think that you in your situation with your deal size need need that level of detail. Chris, I think you'll find this interesting. For a while, the thought process was, all right, like we can start at influencer because it's a well-developed category. We can easily run search against that, those specific queries. And it's just more of like an established audience. And once we get in there, then we can make it so obvious that we need to talk to the content folks, mm-hmm. the e-commerce individuals, the people who handle paid. And I think what we've found over time is that it's very difficult to pivot a conversation. And if you've ran, if you've run value props that resonate with say an influencer marketing manager, and then you basically come in hot and say, actually, you know, the buyer group should include your boss and that person on the other team that you've never met before. Mm-hmm. Or you don't even know their name, you see them in the hallway and you're on a high basis, right? Like that hasn't worked well. When we started higher, we can go into the influencer space or in, into mm-hmm. the influencer manager as more of like a last minute kind of value yeah. creation. Like get them on board, yeah. different things like that. It, it works both ways and both ways can work, right? There's plenty of deals that we win that start with a marketing manager really believing in what we're doing, trying some things, getting success, and then bringing it to their CMO. 
or the other way around the CMO. And then they get their, the people on board. Once we're in the conversation, we know that we can help. I wouldn't try and box yourself into one or the other because I think both will play out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you communicate broad, like communicating broadly, whether it's through paid or organic and good content, like your champions identify themselves and they start working internally to get those things done. And then they just surface when they're ready. Yep. It's interesting. This uh, is sort of out of left field and I'm, we'll get back onto your agenda afterwards, but have you ever used your platform to promote your product? Basically like eating your own dog food, so to speak. Like I've been doing that recently for the past, I don't know, recently past 18, 24 months where anything that I started to tell our customers to do, I started to do myself. And now I understand it more deeply than they do, which gives me a competitive advantage on content, but also against competitors just because like I feel like we're ahead of any alternative or an internal team. And so have you considered doing that as a way to showcase what could be done with your product using, I don't know who, I don't know how you'd identify those people, but perhaps there's a play there. Yeah. We run a ton of campaigns to primarily like gather content that we can then use in paid. Mm-hmm. So, like we just ran a meet me on Coley campaign where mm-hmm. basically the prompt to these creators was, Hey, like, tell us what you're passionate about. Give us a little like 15, 20 second clip on you know, what you're passionate about and um, why you, why you like using Coley. And mm-hmm. then it's just a little tagline that we all like stitched together. It's like, meet me on Coley. But yeah, from an influencer standpoint, as far as our audiences, less so just because it's, it represents such a small, uh, our, our target persona represents such a small percentage of their, their respective followings. Yeah. Understood. Yeah, I get. I get it now. Yeah, or even in even in the creation side, and then you handle the distribution side, so that you're not leveraging them for the distribution, but the the creation almost. So that's interesting play too. Yeah, exactly for ad creative. Cool. Mm -hmm. All right. (laughs) Back to your agenda. (laughs) Yeah, actually, it was really good segue into actually potentially two different agenda items. I'm gonna pick one here. Um, So you talked about the standing out from like the competition. Right, and using mm-hmm. this content as a way to do that. One big initiative for us was trying to like establish a firmer uh, like ground to stand on in mm-hmm. the competitive space. What's interesting though is this: as we're meeting with our AdWords agency, we're actually talking, we're actually seeing a bit of a better performance trend right now with respect to like non-competitive, non-branded keywords, and also the CPL is lower for that as well. And we're just starting to see this trend has been going on for like a month or so. So we need like more data to accumulate. But I guess two part question, what's like your initial reaction to that? And is there a certain point where we wouldn't want to cut competitive funding for these these competitive bids? Is there like a, a seller that we'd want to hit before we like, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Mm, the question? Let me give you my answer and you can tell me whether yeah, I understood yeah. your question well. <laughs> I believe that if a lot of companies looked at their competitor campaigns and audited them against revenue, they would immediately stop running them. Mm. And so, but the problem is that when it comes to Google ads, a lot of executives now chop it up as an operational cost and they never scrutinize the results. They literally just spend the money, they collect conversions, and I see the craziest conversions in there 30 seconds on site, downloaded an ebook, signed up for our newsletter. And they're paying $300 CPL and they're pumped about that. And it's disguised with terrible conversions. And so on the competitive side, like you might find that you don't need those. Like I, I lean in to brand and high intent non-brand terms, right? So high intent non-brand terms would be like 
It includes platform, it includes software, it includes demo or pricing or different things like that. And I lean into those. Um, I don't spend any time on mid top or mid funnel inside of Google. I just think it's not worth it given the cost of those platforms. You can get better stuff done with the money elsewhere. And then on the split, like it depends on how well you're known your brand is, but I mean, better than 20% of conversions, non-brand, 80% brand. I think ideally it's 50-50 almost sort of what you want to go to. But if the question was about like, is this surprising to me? No. Like I think that non-branded terms will, will outperform competitive terms. That was like a perfect answer to the cool. question. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank you uh, very much for that. So on the competitor thread, I guess, so we talked about it from like a paid side of things. What about from like a third party allocation? Like, you know, we're thinking about calories spent and some budget putting behind like G2, Captera reviews. Like mm-hmm. those are things that can surface in organic search results anyhow. So mm-hmm. do you take on like those and that? For reviews or for PPC? For reviews specifically. Yes. I think that having a good amount of what I would consider social proof across those third party channels where buyers are looking is like an obvious one that you want to do. The question is how, mm-hmm. right? And so you can incentivize people to do them. You can just ask them for one or you can wait for them to do it on their own. Those are sort of like the three immediate ones that I see. And then it's just up to you about how many you want, what channels you want to direct people to, because you're not going to have success saying, hey, can you do one on Captera, G2, and our website over here, right? So you have to sort of like figure out which is the most important and how you want to do that. And then one of the things that we've been doing, this is sort of an extension, is we go in there and we look at all the things that customers say and we pull out words that they use. And then we use those either direct quotes or words in ads. Mm -hmm. Right. That makes perfect sense. Um, But yes, I do believe that you should spend time there if you learn that your buyers are looking there. Mm -hmm. Right. Of the different ways you talked about soliciting those type of reviews, have you found in your experience one to be better in terms of producing like those usable in ad copy type of quotes? Like my thought is if we're looking for customer support, quotes or server, we might ask them for one after a particularly good like support case has been closed, right? Mm-hmm. Or like immediately post-sale, we talk about that experience record. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. is there any kind of like timing consideration? When it comes um, to- I'm sure that like when there's good news, you're going to have more, su- like when that's in a good spot, you're going to have more success to ask for those. You can sort of get your CSM team on board on the triggers of when to do that and why. Mm-hmm. So that's one of them. In terms of actually like taking the reviews and moving them over, it's 100% opportunistic. Like I'm not like sourcing a review and then waiting for it to come in and then using it. I'm just going through reviews of our customers and then pulling out those things and then moving it into copywriting. Cool. Cool. Somewhat along the competitor thread, but also kind of going into, I guess, like a, a pricing or solutions of positioning type of thing. Like how much information in your opinion is helpful to disclose when it comes to like head to head functionality? or like a pricing model, like how much does that matter? How much do you think about the value of that for some, especially mm-hmm. for those high intent, like demo consideration folks? In paid search or just generally? I think in paid search, and I'm also thinking about it in terms of were you to go to like a pricing page or like a solutions page on the mm-hmm. website. So I don't think that you need to go head to head with competitors unless the buyer has shown you that they care about that, Okay, right? But people are going to make the searches, you know, brand A versus brand B in any category. They'll literally use that exact search. There's going to be several review sites like Trust Radius or other ones that are going to beat you at the top. But 
somebody's looking for that information and they're going to get it from somewhere. So if that's an important search for you, then I would have a dedicated page to, for it just so you have it, right? And that's sort of how I would handle, but I don't be, my feeling on the, on the competitive side is I think that companies like to compete against a competitor versus just winning the customer, right? So I spend no time thinking about what our competitors are doing, how they're messaging, how they're priced. I don't care because my customers already told me what they want. I know who they are and I just do the things that work for them. And so it's an interesting mindset shift. So many companies get caught up on like feature A versus feature B versus competitor versus just talking about the things that you believe in and letting the people that believe in those two opt in. I love that. That makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> that's ser- that mind shift, right? Because like, yeah, you even get bogged down from like a time allocation perspective, right? Yeah. Trying to go head to head, get that competitive intel rather than just figure out what our customers care about, what we're self- helping them solve for and just like evangelizing ourselves to a certain extent. Yeah, the only the only consumers that would make that search are companies that are not loyal to a brand, and mm-hmm. I would just rather win as a brand, and then not for the people that want to work with us, they never make that search because I've already won. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. So that I guess helps me understand like the head to head functionality type of comparison, right? When it comes to pricing, is the same rationale like what's your reaction when you see folks do like uh you know get in touch for a custom quote versus that level of transparency to other folks and they have like the different tiers of platform available so i think one is understanding the things that you're specifically good at that your competitors either can't do or choose not to do or whatever what makes you different and what segment of customers is that super valuable for mm-hmm. Right. And then you have you, that's your ICP, right? You're different and you're better to, for them. And so that would be the first step on the pricing page side. I don't know why B2B companies don't do this, regardless of what the competitive landscape is. The companies that publish pricing are enabling buyers to make decisions more quickly. And when they can make decisions more quickly, they're more likely to buy you because they're not, they don't want to sit through two meetings with a competitor to get the price. Like, People value speed and convenience. Executives value speed and convenience way more than people think. Like if I can't see the price and I can't get an on-demand demo and I don't want it that badly, then I'm not going to submit the form. But if they had just given me the pricing and showed me an on-demand demo, I might've just sold myself. And so I think that no matter what your competitors are doing, I have no idea what my competitors are doing. We publish our prices that are very transparent. And I think people appreciate it. It also like, for people that can't afford to work with us, then it's, it's just very clear. And so I would highly recommend it. I think it's just a good good place to be from a brand standpoint in terms of, of transparency. People use hiding pricing as a way to force a buyer into a sales conversation so their reps can demonstrate value. And it's like, just show them the price. Like you sh- It's weird because like 10 years ago, sales was the place that was supposed to demonstrate value. Now buyers want marketing to demonstrate the value before they talk to sales. And so in part of understanding the value is, is messaging the things that are great about your product to a defined audience that values that at the price that you have and them knowing the price so that they can calibrate on the value. Makes a ton of sense from like the transparency angle from like that, that expediting time to decision, frankly, from mm-hmm. like a prospect that's on the site that makes a ton of sense. It's so crazy. Like I um like researching a SaaS tool. I'm on their website. I don't see the price. 
And then the first thing that I do is I go to Google and I search blah, 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 brand pricing. And then their competitor buys the first Google ad. And then I click on it and the competitor publishes their pricing has an easy conversion path. And I convert there anyway. And if the, the first company had just published their price, I would have sat out a demo and bought it because it was my first choice. Yeah. And so wow. it's just really weird how people don't think about how buyers actually buy and how much friction things like that create. Chris, what did publishing that, uh, I remember seeing this on, on Refine Labs website, it's like a starting cost or a minimum cost. Mm -hmm. Has that always been there? And if not, how has it changed like lead quality? We've been publishing our pricing since the company was six months old. And so yeah. it's always been there. The pricing has changed. We've been adding yeah. services and capabilities and different things like that. And so the pricing has changed, mm -hmm. but it's always been there. Does it detract everyone that can't afford us to not submit a demo? No, that's not, it doesn't really work like that, but it does help from a transparency standpoint. And I just overall think that the right customer for us is going to check that before they submit a demo and, and make sure that it's good. Connect is a transparency play and also a bit of like a gatekeeper for us. You just mentioned that like it doesn't deter everyone that can't afford you, but mm -hmm. at the same time, it probably catches some and it saves a bunch of food. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I like that a lot. I like that in terms of going back and like pitching the idea to our sales team, frankly, mm -hmm. time spent there. The other thing that you mentioned was uh, with respect to the demo itself. Are you of the opinion that it's worth having an ungated kind of like recorded high level overview of the software? Or is that something that you would put on the other side of a form and then have that tailored outreach based on like completion or lack thereof? Yeah. So starting in 2016, maybe 17, on the demo form for the company I worked at, there was a demo form where they could have a sales rep go and it was a field sales team. So they were gonna go to their hospital and do a live demonstration of the product. Mm -hmm. So that sales rep might be driving six hours for that meeting. And so we put, and, the, and this company didn't have like sophisticated, like major lead targets or different things like that. I was focused on, how am I going to give a rep the highest probability to win a deal? And so I put a seven minute demo video on the left panel of a two panel like conversion form that they could watch the video and then, and then convert. They still need to convert if they want to buy. Right. And so like, it's not going to detract people that don't want to just because the demo's there to detract people that don't want to buy. And so I think that it's a, I think that it's a good move. Like I've been looking at things on a Sunday and I want it, I want to look at it now. Like I have, busy person. Like I want to, I'm here, I'm looking for it. I can't get a demo. I can't do anything right now. And so I leave and then I'm out of a buying cycle. And so I think that having, I call it buyer enablement. What assets do you need to put on the internet in places where people can find them so that a buyer could sell themselves? Yep. So an ungated, and then it's almost like a, if you still have questions or if you need some additional, or if you want, like, if you want to buy, you know what I mean? Like you want to go yeah, through true. it in your specific use case with a, with a sales rep, or if you're ready to buy, just like, you know what I mean? Do it here. I think over time, I'm not sure if it's on your roadmap, but if product led's on your roadmap, that flow will be really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With you. And with respect to, I guess the different tiers of platform that may be available for that recorded demo would you mm -hmm. go with like the minimum value like the mid-tier that's yeah, i wouldn't necessarily consider it a recorded demo right like i think a three minute animated promo video would do just as good okay right okay. with some screenshots and different things like i don't think that it needs to be like i did a demo for five minutes and i recorded my screen share 
So mm-hmm. I think you can play around with ways that really highlight the value and get somebody more like more educated and ready to have that demo. And it's like, oh, like this is for me. I'm experiencing these things. I want to solve this. Here's the form. Yep. And then you can, like, I think that having a, like your ideal webinar of 15 minutes with the best, like the highest version of your platform somewhere on your website where people can stumble upon it and see what it's all about. I think that's a good thing too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it comes to a view of the video or even I will call it like a page view, right. Mm-hmm. And a non-conversion, how mm-hmm. heavy of a lead score, if any, would you consider given that interaction? Mm. I don't lead score, so it's tough. <laughs> for, it's tough for me to answer this question. To me, lead scoring is binary. It's either the person converted and asked to talk to a sales rep, or they didn't. Mm-hmm. Right? It does. That doesn't mean that then they weren't on that page. I'm going to move them through a retargeting flow, and I'm going to do things like that. And if I have their email and cookies, then I'm going to send them a behavioral based triggered email and do those things. Right? Like I'm still going to do them, but I'm not going to score them at a certain level. You know, if you're with intent data, and this is for people listening, if there's intent data and different things and you want to use that to activate an outbound motion, then go for it. Like that person's more warm than regular account you're going to pull off of your list. And so I think that there's plenty of different ways to slice it. Makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Based on the behavior and not so much like, yeah, it's kind of arbitrary, isn't it? Whether or not what the value of that mm-hmm. is just, yeah, cool. Shifting gears a little bit with respect to, so earlier we're talking about paid and organic and positioning and what have you. Is there an ideal ratio in terms of leads coming in from across these different channels that you look for or like things that would be a red flag if organic is substantially behind paid, for example? Mm, I think this totally depends on the maturity of the organization's mainly organic engine, but paid and organic engine where they're sitting and then the budget allocation resources talent effort amongst those two things mm-hmm. right so at the beginning if companies are starting from scratch the recommendation is to be heavier paid because organics is going to take a long time and time is valuable especially for companies that are venture funded and so they're investing money and in paid to make things go faster would be a smart move at the same time you should be building up the organic channel as organic channel continues to grow and is contributing more, you can start to optimize that mix. A lot of companies, I think, is the ideal is you don't slow down the paid, you just keep building up the organic, right? Guaranteed distribution to your buyers if you're producing the right content, putting in the right places that people like, not that people are annoyed by your ads, then that spending that money for most companies is a good move relative to how else they spend money. And so when you, but when you think about attribution, a lot of the things that we're talking about here, like from a like Instagram ads, you're not going to get direct attribution on that type of thing. And so a majority of your revenue and pipeline should be sourced through last touch attribution, organic search. And in a lot of cases, you don't have any attribution before that. So it's first and last touch organic search, not taking credit for all the other touch points that happened. And that's going to be the major driver because organic, they came there on, on their own, like looked at the website, converted on a demo is what you're, I think, what you're looking for. And that's what we see across all the companies. We audit 70, 80% of marketing sourced revenue comes through that way because it's it's the funnel for how people buy. Whenever you want, think about how you, how when you want to buy something, what you do, somebody tells you that you should get this, or you hear about it at a conference, you do those different things. You go to Google, you search the brand, you consume the homepage and you ask for a demo. And so 
that's why Google specifically why SEO gets a lot more credit than it deserves because it takes the attribution credit for all of the other, I would consider it call them dark funnel touch points that are, can't be measured there. I like dark funnel a lot. Yeah. It, uh, so yeah, essentially, if I'm hearing correctly, it's a matter of taking a combo look at first touch attribution, which is that like over like grabbing credit for right on the SEO side of things. And it's the last touch as well. I'm trying to get a sense of all the things in between. So we got to figure out the Yeah. And if you do marketing like us, like I said, they oftentimes will be the same touch point. Yeah. Right. Like it's not that there are other touch points didn't happen. It's just that you weren't able to track them. Right. Like you watch my LinkedIn video and you don't like it and you don't comment and you just, you just watch it and then you leave like that touch point can't be measured in attribution. If they liked the post that also can't be measured if they commented and we went back and forth for like 10 comments back and forth in LinkedIn. And then after that, they left, talked to their coworker and asked for a demo in your attribution software. It will still show up as organic search and give no credit to that activity. And those are the things that I'm talking about. Right. Makes a lot of sense. When it comes to accumulating the right mix, right? Be it whatever it is, and like me- measuring that attribution force. Something I was pitched on recently is the, this idea of not like black hat SEO, right? Because we wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But the idea of like buying some links. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm assuming that you hate that, but sanity check me. I just don't think you need to do stuff like this, right? Like, yeah, I think that there's a difference between being smart about an opportunity versus a hack, right? Like I think those two things get confused. Like buying links for certain things and paying money for them is what I would consider a hack. Like being smart on LinkedIn in 2019 and connecting with 30 people a day that like marketing content because I wanted to build the audience and that was the most proactive way that I could do it and over time have accumulated a lot more interest in things. That's just being smart, that's not a hack. Right. Like other people didn't see that opportunity. I saw it. I did it. And so those are, I think, the differences. And I think that what you're looking for are smart things that other people don't see that because like your competitor could easily follow on that if they're not already doing it. Right. And so I I like the white space where I know that my competitors aren't smart enough to have this figured out yet. And Mm -hmm. so therefore I'm either in a full, I'm in a channel marketing where our customers are that they aren't because they don't pay attention to it or they don't believe in it or they don't know how to do it. And I'm looking for those opportunities. That's where you get major growth. So when we think about SEO, I believe that SEO was at its prime somewhere between 2007 and 2011, somewhere in that range, right? It worked. It continued to work for me in 13, 14, and 15. And I've slowed down my use of it ever since then. And so, and from my own business standpoint, like people have asked us, like, can you do SEO? Like, can you add that as a service? And I'm just like, I'm not going backwards a decade to do SEO. I'm moving forwards, right? And so I think as brands, you should also think about that as well is like the incremental benefit on buying links versus if you started to build a, you know, your events or your podcast or your TikTok even, I'm not sure, you know what I mean? Like, I think the moving forward is better than, than going back. 100%. Can I ask you about the events uh, yeah, component that you just mentioned? So. What, what do you look for in terms of like a proposal for like an event sponsorship, right? Like speaking engagements, I have a little bit more like comfort on just because like the PR background, but when it comes to a sponsorship opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that there are some instances where a sponsorship opportunity makes sense. But from my perspective, I'm focused on cutting out the middleman and owning the event. 
right? And so like, I don't need to pay this conference $25,000 to collect my buyers. I can do it on my own now, right? Like that's the difference. In 1995, it was difficult for a brand to do that. So they needed to go to the conference because that's where all their buyers congregated. Now their buyers congregate on LinkedIn and inside of communities, inside of cities. And you could have an event and get all of those buyers that would be at the conference and get them together if you put on a really good event. And so I feel like that component of eliminating the middleman, we see it in all different places, real estate, you know, taxis, every single place, the middleman is getting pushed out. Conferences are a middleman. And so it's not going to happen tomorrow. Companies are still going to fund them for a very long time. But the smart companies, like in 2017, my like North Star for content was to look at what the top conference that the, my buyers went to and what sessions they went to and who they listened to, and then build something better than that. Start to take the people that were the best speakers and have them featured on our webinars start to have them come on our podcast, start to have them you know, speak on a fireside chat with our CEO at an event. And so from a mindset standpoint, I think that's what, if it is really a conference, I think that's what you want to go to from a content standpoint. For your customer, it probably is. For your customer's customers, it's probably not a conference. It's probably a social network. Right. It makes a ton of sense. And were you just like kind of a boots on the ground presence getting that intel about what Breakout sessions were being attended, mm-hmm. or how did you actually keep tabs of them? Just thinking about like religious. I went to them. <laughs> you you were there. I knew the people that were there that were influential. I went to conferences either with them or I followed them. Or, you know what I mean? Followed them to the places that they were going. I heard what people thought. I would go up to the speakers afterwards and introduce myself and see what they were thinking and see how we could collaborate later. I would meet people when we were at drinks. Like that's the value of a conference is understanding what your buyer is doing while they're there. And so that's, that's what I would do. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And do you see value in keeping track of the event hashtag, for example, or like dialogue that's going on there? Is that like harder to take action on, mm. in your opinion? I'm sure there's value in it, right? Like I pre- presented sort of like a, they're both primary market research, but a more direct route to get that research is by actually being there. I think that you could supplement it or try and like replace it with following the hashtags. I just think you, I think you miss a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris, what about, uh, I mean, we're talking about your new podcast studio and, and HubSpot inbound on the, down the street here. seems like there's a, a similar opportunity to basically set up a satellite, like setup that's very similar at other conferences, right? Mm-hmm. We did that. Yeah, <laughs> we got, yeah. I've done this before. Yeah. Conference in yeah. Toronto or conference in Vegas. Get right. a suite, get a video crew, set something up and have mm-hmm. 10 or 12 people come up throughout the day or get four people together and do a chat around a topic that they're all experts in or whatever those things yeah. are. Like content creation at conferences, this is the number one opportunity because you have all the people in one spot. Right. Totally. And so like, I'm, Force I'm, is a great example of that, right? Like you don't Force is a great example. I've been yeah. like I've been doing this for a long time. It's like if you didn't spend two hundred thousand dollars on a Dreamforce booth, exactly. what else could you do around that conference to make a dramatic dramatically larger impact? I think Gong didn't get the booth and did a lot of innovative things that's been on a podcast of ours before. And so I think smart people are recognizing there's just better ways to use those dollars. Yeah. If you're replacing a two hundred thousand dollar budget, you can get a pretty nice suite down the street. 
<laughs> yeah, sweet video crew, bunch yeah. of content. Uh, yeah. You could you could do a satellite event mm-hmm. for people, and then you still have a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand dollars for amplification, content post production afterwards. And so you end up only spending a hundred when you would normally you normally end up spending way less than you normally would if you include travel and booth and everything like that. And so you spend less and you get more, which is the I think the goal of marketing. Versus just like <laughs> handing out free hats and doing a 15 minute keynote. Where yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. I didn't mention the speaking engagement component of it. I mean, is it the same mentality? Usually it's no. like a cost of certain. No. Talk to me about that. I think the, the speaking engagement is one of the, if a booth was required to do a speaking engagement and I thought that speaking engagement was valuable enough to justify the cost of the booth, then I would do that play, right? Like sometimes that's sort of like what conferences work out. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, you buy this big booth and you get this. And so something to think about there. I think that the speaking opportunity at a conference is a great spot. You have undivided attention from a large amount of buyers. I want that content recorded. I want that to be able to go on a podcast. I want that to go on YouTube. I want to be able to have that video to send to all the people that are in our database that didn't go to see that. And so setting up, like I consider that earned PR, even if you're paying for it. Mm-hmm. And so like setting up places for your subject matter experts or those people to get earned spots on podcasts, events, different things like that is a great move. We're really feeling the impact of that right now. I think that's a really big opportunity for people as well. Awesome. And so again, like, I think that the spots paying for them at conferences is great. I think that you could get a similar impact over time by doing it on your own. I think there's a play to do some form of both. Yep. With respect to follow-up after an event, after a conference, how do you think about who owns that? Like this is a debate we had internally recently, right? If you attended a particular breakout session that Coley presented at, then chances are you're going to hear from like a, a, a high touch, mm-hmm. high performing rep versus someone that maybe was just like on the attendance list, but we know based on like the demographics, you are a reasonably good fit for us. You might get a more traditional type of marketing blast. Poke holes in that. <laughs> so I've talked to enough reps one-on-one about their desire to follow up with these types of people, which is very low. Like they don't want to do that normally because marketing's giving a giveaway to collect leads to hit an MQL target to justify the event versus having someone that actually wants to buy. And so I think it's a careful thing. The ones that reps do want to follow up with are when the rep was at the conference, had the conversation and set a next step. That's my qualitative insight. I think a lot of salespeople listening, they would sort of agree with that as well. And so I think this is actually, I think that it's a marketing touch. And I think that one way that I'm just thinking out loud here, I think one way that would be a really interesting follow-up would be a thoughtful direct mail execution to with the CTA of booking a demo. I like that. Yeah. You might have, there might be some data, you know what I mean? There's like technical challenges you need to get over, but I'm sure all of those are, can be overcome. So I think something along those lines would, it's a little bit softer. It also uh, I think is respectful to the sales organization as well. Right. Yeah. Technical challenges. Segway King to the, uh, I know that we wanted to get your thoughts on iOS 14 rollout. And also if you have any take or like calming words about cookies and you go with this where you will. 
but yeah, yeah you're going to take them. Yeah. So, um, iOS 14 in terms of attribution on Facebook and Instagram across B2B and B2C, the way that we do it is really hurting. We're at the place where we, for one customer, and we know because Salesforce is showing more demos. So we know that the impact of Facebook is growing. In last September, we had 73 attributable demos for 50K ACV SaaS. And this month we have three, right? It doesn't mean that the ads aren't effective. It just means that we're not able to show which campaign did it and which different things did it. So it's, it's hurting marketers to make more informed decisions, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't use the channel, right? And so there's a careful balance in there that I think a lot of people will struggle with. And when a lot of people are struggling with something that works, it's a good opportunity for people that can kind of like see beyond that and make it work for them. And so on that one part, I think that companies should still lean into Facebook and Instagram ads that way. Like the reason that I know is because I know that I'm getting to the right people. I know that it costs less than a lot of other things that we're doing. I know that the message is resonating. I know that it's being consumed. And even if that's the only thing, it's still worth the money that we're spending. And I know because I see stuff happening in Salesforce that that's not the only thing that's happening. I know that it's driving an impact. And so there's, there's some nuances there. In terms of the loss of third-party cookies or all, all the different things that are changing, the best part is that for top marketers, it creates a massive advantage. And so what I see is that companies and marketers that can build a brand, can produce organic content that people like, can distribute it in those places, that can supplement them with media, that can have relationships and have a well-defined ICP and they know them, like those types of things, and actually execute digitally have a massive advantage because so many companies have been living off of paid, performance marketing paid, that's now declining, whether it's on Google because of the way that Google Dynamics are working right now. I've had 10 conversations with companies that spend more than $200,000 a month on Google ads and their CPL and their unit economics, CPL is going way up, unit economics are going way down over the past two years to a point where they can't do it anymore, right? And they don't know what else to do. They haven't spent time building a brand. They don't have a podcast. They don't know how to create content. They're in a really tough spot. Same thing goes with people that were living off of performance marketing inside of Facebook and Instagram and will skew B2B for this part of the conversation because B2C companies are different. But like the lead gen model inside of Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn for that matter is the performance is declining to a place where if executives actually looked at it, they would say, this is terrible because I've audited the data and I know how bad it is across dozens of companies. And so the advantage here, it's not by not using the channels, it's about using them differently. It's about being just flat out being better. And so I think the opportunity is in building a, building a brand. You don't need cookies. You don't need a ton of tech. You don't need a bunch of stuff to build a brand. You need to understand your customers deeply, understand what, you know, how you can provide value and just, and create content that helps do that. It's getting back to the fundamentals. 100%. I think that the reason that I've been able to be a pretty successful marketer is because I deeply respect the fundamentals of just pure strategy about being very narrow about who you're going after, about understanding those people deeply, about constantly auditing your messaging, about communicating a lot so you get a lot of rapid feedback, right? Like our messaging gets constantly iterated because I'm talking about it all the time and I'm sensing like that hit harder than what we're doing right now or this thing didn't work, let's switch it up or this works for this person, but it doesn't work for this person. Why? And so those are some things. Yeah. Fantastic. Those were 
most of my things. I think anything else, Tom, I'm sure to sneak no, in. No, that was perfect. Awesome. Cool. I'll throw in one like extra credit thing that's been on my mind recently, especially as like dynamics of the situation are changing and it feels like things are going to start to change. I think there's a big play, a big white space in B2B companies in experiential, whether that's thoughtful, personalized, direct mail, right? So like, I don't know, you have P&G or something, and then you go to the 10 or other companies that are sort of like P&G with something customized about how P&G did this and was successful or blah, blah, blah. Not direct competitors, but you get what I'm saying. Not the, you know, send direct letter to 5,000 accounts, but send something very specific to 10 high value accounts. That's very valuable. I think that one's in there. Events and change. I talk about events a lot, but, and I think we've talked about that before, but changing the strategy on events for a value and content creation and potentially an influencer play, which is meta because of what you all do. And so something like that, and then anything else where you can get people to a place where they're doing something that they like that give them opportunities to share those things with other people. So the, you know, the step and repeat type of thing is a very common one, but like how else could you do that? Which encourages people that are at your event to take a picture and share it on LinkedIn or different things like Gong's been doing that pretty well. I'm sure there's several brands and B2C brands crush it on that. Um, but thinking about real life interactions, whatever they are, you can be really creative in those different things. And then a way to capture that and then amplify it digitally is something B2B companies don't do. B2C companies do very well. And so I think that's a an open space right now for given where we are with the world. Is there anything else that you feel like we should have asked you that we didn't? That was either directly related or a little more tangential? No, I think this was great. So yeah, yeah we can start penciling some stuff down and we can do it again next month. This was fun. I think it was fun and I think it'd be super valuable for people. Yeah, really, really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Cool. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.